following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. want to remind you with about something that was said in our first first Corinthians study a couple weeks ago and it was this that Paul shows us in the first nine verses the church that is in Christ that God sees and then in verses 10 through 17 the verses that we'll be looking at this evening he shows us the church that the world sees first nine verses the church that God sees through Jesus, and then in these next few verses, the church that the world sees. And so before addressing the problems that existed in Corinth, Paul first gave thanks for them because of the grace given to them in Christ Jesus. Because they were a chosen people, an enriched people, he said, and an established people for the word of God had been confirmed within their hearts. They were saints called out and set apart for the glory of God. However, they weren't living out that kind of fellowship that Jesus intends for his church. As we're going to see, they, they weren't behaving very good. They were behaving badly. Um, they weren't being the kind of fellowship that Jesus intends for his church. Their practice was not matching up to what they said they believed. I think most of us would agree that we, we often, there are times when we often find ourselves kind of like falling into that very category. In other words, longing to live in a way that we say we believe. What do you think? Yeah? Would that be like hitting the nail on the head? But at that point, realizing then just how far, how far short of that that we often fall. Here's what we say we believe, and here's what actually happens, and this is what our life looks like. We, we find ourselves in, in constant prayer, and may we find ourselves in constant prayer. Asking the Lord to help us as individuals and as a church to know how it is and how we, what we must do to become a point of comfort and authenticity. A place of hope, a safe harbor of relief and a rescue for those who have lost their way in this world. May we be that kind of people. So in verses 10 through 17, Paul is going to let them know they, that they cannot be at odds with one another and then think that everything is okay with Jesus. And that's what he's going to be showing them, showing us today as well. And so Paul turned to the matter of division that was taking place within the church. How many of you know, if you've been in church for about five minutes, <laughs> that division has always been a problem amongst God's people? And, and as a matter of fact, in case you weren't aware of this, almost every New Testament letter deals with this topic or at least mentions it. 
in one way or another, this, this problem with division. The church at Corinth was in a sad state. The fellowship among believers had deteriorated to such a degree that if something isn't done, if change doesn't happen, it could implode from within. Now, because we've been in church for a little while, it, like I said, it only requires about five minutes or so, right? And because we know human nature, it has been the same since we've been on planet Earth. We can know just by the term that Paul's going to be using in quarreling and all that that compass, there was severe division. And so that means dissension, verbal accusations, differing opinions, competitive positions, power struggles, envy, contention, grumbling. How am I doing so far? <laughs> Griping, complaining, murmuring, quarreling, attacking, and let's be sure we don't leave out gossiping. Believer stood against believer, and there was no sign of any unity or harmony. Why? Because pride and self-centeredness we're having a heyday in Corinth. This was the first problem dealt with by Paul. It had to be dealt with first, for a house divided against itself cannot stand, amen? There were other problems in the church, as we're going to see as we progress in our study of Corinthians. Other matters had to be handled, but unless they were brought together, in one spirit and mind, nothing else could ever be taken care of or corrected. Had to begin with the whole idea of getting back together in unity and in harmony and being of one heart and mind. This was that first problem that he's going to be ministering to. The ministry and mission of the church could not effectively go on until people stood together. Worship and missions and teaching and reaching and ministering to people. Folks, the very cause of Christ, the very reason he came to earth, died for our sins, was being affected and would continue to suffer until the people were brought together in the bond of God's love, in the spirit of unity. So we're going to see here in verse 10 where we pick it up that Paul is going to make an appeal to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you may say, in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. The Greek word parakaleo, which is the word being used here and translated as appeal, simply means to call to one's side for the purpose of counsel, 
or encouragement. Paul leads into the subject, I want you to catch this, with a tender, I appeal to you. And affectionately addresses them as brothers and sisters. Paul will use this word appeal in this letter 39 times. More than any of his other letters, 39 times this term, this word, will be used by the Apostle Paul. And we notice that he appeals to them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. The full title heightens the gravity of his appeal. And the one name that stands over and against all of the names that they had come up with to identify their various groups. Don't say, isn't that cool? You may have your name, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, as we're going to be seeing here in a moment, but there's a greater name, and that's the name that trumps them all, <laughs> stands against them all, and their divided groups. Scholars suggest that this word actually sets the tone for the entire letter. It can also be translated as urge and even comfort. The term signals that what follows originates from a heart of love and concern. Paul dearly loves these people back in Corinth. He's been gone, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, about four and a half, five years at this point. He's the founder of the church. He loves them. He cares about them. He knows what can be for them and how it can be for them. They just kind of get back together. As we're going to see, get over themselves. <laughs> it's just a recurring problem, isn't it? And it has been for centuries now. <laughs> get over themselves, start caring about Jesus and one another. And so in other words, rather than approach the struggling Corinthian believers, he appeals to them in a tender way. Unlike and rather than with the attitude of a father who's about to take his kid out behind the woodshed. <laughs> He's calling them aside to speak words of wise counsel, encouraging them toward the right path before more damage can be done, before possibly even it's too late. I like that. He, he refers to them as brothers and sisters. And some of us, we might be tempted, if we were the Apostle Paul, to call them a bunch of knuckleheads or something like that, you know. He doesn't do that. I think this is why Paul reminds his readers of his love by calling them brothers and sisters. He reaches out to them tenderly, as if drawing them together for a nice family meeting. As an apostle, Paul appeals to them, as we have already said, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is based on the Lord's authority and his power. Compelled by his love for them and using his authority to speak in Christ's name, Paul urgently calls them to reconcile with one another. And I, want, I do want us to, to sense in what Paul is saying here, the urgency that is on it. You've got to get together. 
verse 11 and 12. It says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household. It is not real clear who Chloe is. Scholars suggest that because there really isn't any um, kind of description given or you know, explanation of who she is, that they just know who she is. It would be kind of like if, you know, we being the, the ministers here and we, we were gone for two, three years and we wrote you a letter and we said, Kenny says, and I wouldn't need any, any explanation on that, right? You would just know who Kenny is. <laughs> it's kind of like that, Chloe. Chloe, someone, people from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, and then here's the problem. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. If you don't know who Cephas is, that's the Hebrew term for Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. You can imagine. I'm just picturing the church signs. First Church of Paul. First Church of Apollos, you know, First Church of Cephas, and then in a great, great big, bigger sign, lights flashing, Church of Christ. You know, they were, they were the ones. That we, we really are given no definition, no explanation as to why these particular divisions and, and what the particular ones represented. We're not given that, just that they existed. So we can because we know human nature, right? We can kind of think of what it might have similarly sounded like, maybe something like this. Some said, we follow Paul simply because he's the founder of our church. So we're going to remain loyal to him. Others said, Paul, perhaps not impressive enough. We don't like his style. So we follow Apollos. He's an eloquent speaker, powerful personality. A true intellectual. Remember now, Corinth, like Athens, was a philosophical center. So that may have been it. A third group said, Paulus might be a skilled speaker, but we have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> so we follow Cephas. We follow Peter, the rugged fisherman. He's a man's man. He speaks practically and simply. Again, scholars even suggest that part of the problem might have been Apostle Paul would been, being the apostle called to the Gentiles would have had influence and attracted Gentiles. Peter was more of an apostle to the Jewish people, and he may have attracted the Jewish population of Corinth, creating some division in that way. A fourth group said, we don't follow any man. We follow Christ. <laughs> Do you sense perhaps some pride and arrogance in that? These same four groups can still be seen today. And it could possibly be that this last group, possibly, just saying, might have been the most proud. Something along the lines of, I don't, we're not into following man. We're freelancers. 
We can come and go as we please. Not into the structure of command. It's too restrictive. Cramps my style. Not responsible, not accountable, linked to any elder, pastor, or group, or believers. I answer only to Jesus. And although Jesus is indeed our commander-in-chief, amen? And we do indeed answer to him. He has chosen to work through the structure of the body of Christ. Paul elaborates on this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. It was he, referring to the Lord, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And here's the reason. He says, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Paul's passionate appeal has two sides to it. They are to stop being divided and instead be united. He urges them to rid themselves of the division. This word division is an interesting word as a matter of fact. It's the Greek word schisma, for which we get English words like schisms and even scissors come from that Greek word. It refers to a tear or a split. The Corinthian church was torn apart, broken and splitting at its seams. So Paul says, stop quarreling. Enough with the clicks. Put away your pride and conceit. Get back together. And interestingly, we notice here that Paul doesn't attack the teaching of any of the cliques, just the fact that cliques existed. And the whole thing was wrong. And Paul's letting them know that not only him, but God will have none of it. So Paul addresses the problem of the divisive cliques with two positive exhortations that we saw in verse 10. That all of you agree and be perfectly united in mind and thought. I know because it would be true for me. We read, we hear that and we think to ourselves, that is, that is basically pretty much impossible. The people I know, the folks I do church with, that ain't happening. <laughs> but he says it. All of you agree and be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul desires that even in the midst of diversity. Have you heard that word lately? <laughs> that even in the midst of diversity, there would be harmony of attitude, agreement on the essentials. Amen? Essentials of the faith and a single-mindedness of purpose. As a matter of fact, the Greek verb kartatizo, translated in verse 10 as perfectly, can also be translated to mean be made complete. It is the same word. Check this out. You're going to love this. It's the same word that is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, for the term mending nets. 
I think that is a great, perfect image for mending broken relationships. Don't you? They had been torn apart through pride and disagreement and unresolved conflict. Before we move on, we need to realize and understand that Paul does indeed recognize the impossibility of establishing complete uniformity of belief and practice in any church. He talks very strongly about this in Romans 14, verses 1 through 5. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 make it clear that God never intended for the church to reflect a rigid uniformity. God is not interested in manufacturing a cookie-cutter fellowship of believers who look and act and talk exactly alike. What God is after, his desire is, the goal is unity and not uniformity. Variety within the community of faith. Think this with me. Variety within the community of faith reflects the power and the glory of God. Neither, neither division and conflict on one hand nor zombie-like uniformity on the other can reflect God's ideal for a local church. He longs for unity in diversity. So Paul is going to, he addresses them in this, his appeal, kind of identifies for us somewhat the problem, and now he's going to give an answer the Apostle Paul responds to the strife within the church by asking three really good questions. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Great questions, don't you think? In light of what had taken place, the division that had taken place within Corinth, he first asked, is Christ divided? That's a really good question. I want you to think through with me on what Paul is kind of really doing here with that question. You see, the body of Christ in Corinth, which was one body at one time, had separated into four different groups. Is Christ divided? It's kind of like Paul addressing the silliness and the ridiculousness of their splitting and their divisions with a pretty interesting, ridiculous question. In other words, is Christ in his resurrected body dismembered? That's what he's saying. <laughs> is he dismembered elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul described the church as the body of Christ. One body. Amen? The community of those joined to him and to one another by faith. 
If Christ had been dismembered after his resurrection, the divisions with, that were existing within the church at Corinth may have theoretically been acceptable. But since Christ remained whole, this is what Paul's doing here, since Christ did remain whole, the body of Christ needed to remain whole as well. Isn't that powerful? He then secondly asked, was Paul crucified for you? Some members of the church identified themselves as the followers of Paul with this question. He made it clear that to identify oneself as a follower of Paul was to insult the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul was a servant and he was an apostle of Christ sent to them, but he was not their crucified, resurrected Savior. Thirdly, Paul asked, were you baptized in the name of Paul? The New Testament makes it clear and plain with verses such as Matthew 28, 19, that Christian baptism was performed in the name of the Trinity and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There were at times it became abbreviated as in the name of Jesus. We see that in Acts 2.38, chapter 19, verse 5. However, nowhere in the New Testament were believers baptized in any name of any of the apostles. Did not happen. The loyalties of believers in all ages must be directed toward Christ and him alone. Their pride and conceit are showing up by boasting about who had baptized them. Can you imagine how silly that would have sounded? Well, my baptism is better than your baptism because Paul baptized me. It's showing up and apparently they had come to believe that the authenticity of their faith rested not only on baptism but also on who their baptizer was. Amazingly, think about this, church. Amazingly, in the midst of conflict, this ordinance of Christ that should have marked the believer's unity in one body had so deteriorated into a basis for arrogant, divisive boasting. And Paul says, this cannot be. Clearly, would you agree with me that they had lost focus? They allowed the act of baptism as their visible response to the gospel message to overshadow the very message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> when conceited, quarreling cliques erupt into controversy in a local church, pride stops at nothing. Amen? The story is told of two congregations belonging to two different denominations located only a few blocks from each other in a certain community that they thought it might be better if they would merge and become one united body, one united church, larger, perhaps more effective, rather than two struggling small churches. Sounded good on both ends, and it was a great idea, they thought. 
Both churches, however, proved to be too petty to pull it off. They ran into one great big problem. You know what the problem was? They couldn't agree on how they would recite the Lord's Prayer. That was the problem. One group wanted, forgive us our trespasses. The other group wanted, forgive us our debts. So the local newspaper reported that one church went back to its trespasses and the other went back to its debts. The world is always watching, church. When the body of Christ is divided, here's my question to us all. Who bleeds? Is it not Christ our Lord? Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul redirects their attention to the most central thing, the thing that should hold them together in one mind, and that's the gospel. Paul reminds them that he didn't go to Corinth to put on a show. He didn't parade his abilities, and he could have. He didn't turn the spotlight on himself. In fact, it would appear here that he evidently delegated the work of baptism to others in order to free himself up to keep doing what he was called to do, preach the gospel. And Paul also reminds him that he didn't preach that message with wisdom, human wisdom or eloquence. In other words, with rhetorical skill or cleverness of speech, and he could have. To do so, Paul says, would have turned their attention away from the message and towards the messenger instead. One commentator wisely notes, the gospel of Christ's person and work should stand at the center of everything we think say or do sadly far too many have lost sight of this all-important truth today people are mesmerized by rock star preachers who can attract a crowd rev up the audience and put on a good show in our entertainment driven culture the word of god often gets banished to the backstage while flash takes center stage, forcing their way into the limelight. What a tragedy. The Apostle Paul couldn't have been clearer. When you glorify the messenger, you distract people from the message. Paul just kept it simple, and he kept it singular never changing, never uh, wavering, preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. However, today you'll find people saying something like, come on, let's be practical. We need more than just hearing about Jesus Christ crucified. We have problems 
with our marriages, with our addictions and with our children, with our guilt and problems, with our unbelief and doubt. But it seems to me, and I think you'll find as well throughout this letter, we'll see that the solution and the answer to every problem that plagues every person is the same. And it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which means here we are again, <laughs> getting over ourselves. Getting our eyes off of ourselves. And to quote from an old hymn, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and looking full into his wonderful face. And then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful for your grace and mercy. And we are thankful, God, that you have even this morning through your word made an appeal to us that we make sure that we are not allowing the ridiculous silliness of division to take place within Wellspring of Life Church. That, God, we would display you and that the people outside seeing us, not only in here, but seeing us in our respective places, at our jobs and in our neighborhoods and in our homes, seeing us living in a way which we say we believe, united in spirit and in the bond of your love, living graciously, and lovingly and treating each other in that way, including those whom sometimes we think don't deserve it. Who of us deserve your love and your grace? But God, may we rise to the occasion and may we be a part of your body that is united and in harmony in the midst of all the diversity that exists in our world. Lead us, guide us, Lord, to be your people, leading others into your light and into your truth. And may our lives be representative of Christ and him crucified. With our eyes off of ourselves and our eyes on you, Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.